I was really worried that he was going to start migrating the second he started rubbing, but he did just like what I'm saying. He took three or four days. He didn't move, stayed in this little spot, kept rubbing, eating acorns, hit the water rub. And he stayed there just long enough for us to slip in and get the job done. It worked out, but who knows by the 25th, he could have started moving because that's when they're starting to look for cows and kind of mark territory, so to speak. And a lot of bulls migrate a long ways by September 20th. Some of my bulls have moved 15 miles. So it's, it's always a stress for me. That was a big stress on that bull because I didn't know if he was going to stick around four or five <laughs> days or just appeal. Yeah. You know? and, and 15 or 20 miles could be a different hunting unit. Yep. Or a sovereign nation or another state. <laughs> you never know. You've got to be really careful. These are stories of outdoor adventure and expert advice from folks with calloused hands. I'm James Nash, and this is the Six Ranch Podcast. The Six Ranch Podcast is brought to you by Sig Sauer. SIG is a leading provider and manufacturer of firearms, electro-optics, ammunition, air guns, and suppressors. For over 250 years, SIG Sauer Inc. has evolved and thrived by blending American ingenuity, German engineering, and Swiss precision. Today, SIG Sauer is synonymous with industry-leading quality and innovation, which has made it the brand of choice amongst the U.S. military the global defense community, law enforcement, competitive shooters, hunters, and responsible citizens. Sig Sauer is also a premier provider of elite firearms instruction and tactical training at the Sig Sauer Academy located in New Hampshire. For more information about Sig Sauer and its complete line of products, visit SigSauer.com. Ryan Carter. You have, uh, you've drawn the straw of talking to us about how to hunt early season and early season changes, you know, depending on the state that you're in and the regulations that you're in, uh, you know, we're going to start August 28th, um, here in Oregon this year, but you guys start even earlier in, in Utah. And then some of these governor hunts, you know, they'll start August 1st or, or earlier yet, which, uh, you actually deal with a few of those governor tags, don't you? Yeah, I've done a few. They're hard. Those are hard hunts. I, I don't necessarily love them. I, I like jumping in in our early season 20th archery type hunts we have here. Is that is where you're at? Is that about the same as the archery that starts at the end of August? It is. Yep. Nice. Yep. So that those are my favorite hunts. I, I would almost rather them than the rifle hunts because of the way I hunt. So, yeah, we this is a great slot to put me in. Uh, I can fill your, <laughs> I, I can fill out your guys in there. So that's good. So what kind of work goes into an early season hunt before the season starts for you? Miles. I like where I do most of my guiding. Uh, I don't use binoculars a lot. Glass isn't an option. It's really tight. I hunt mesas and plateaus. Um, and they're pretty, they're still high elevation. I'm still hunting between 8,500 and 11,000 feet. It's just, 
the elevation's so flat, it's just like hunting hardwoods anywhere else. Um, I, I don't have big lookout points. I have a couple, but it's not. It's usually post rut that those kind of come into play where the bulls kind of summer. I, I run a lot of trail cameras and uh, spend a lot of time hiking. So that's kind of my role. And you were the one who turned me on to stealth cam DS4Ks, which gave me a huge leg up. And it wasn't so much for me, the, the video aspect of things. It was the audio that came with it. I've learned more from that audio than I ever could have imagined. Isn't it cool? I, you know, I still don't think there's a camera on the market that beats it. And it, they've been out since 2017. The ability to have two lenses, so you're getting pictures and video at the same time and pulling in the audio, the, the hissing, the posturing, the, the just the cow interactions with the bulls. I mean, it, it's, uh, it's fascinating. And I wouldn't say what the Arizona governors are saying, they're the commissioners or whatever they're saying, you know, trail camera picture, dead buck, trail camera picture, dead bull. I, I think that's silliness, but you'd learn a lot about behavior by, by being able to visualize some of that stuff when they think nobody's around. Right. It's pretty cool. I would still be believing at this point that like, you know, this type of bugle comes from this type of bull means this kind of thing. And I would be completely wrong in, in so much of that. Um, because I've seen these bugles from specific bulls now enough times. And I have literally thousands and thousands of videos is just like you do. Um, not to the extent that you do, cause you're a madman, but you know, I run 30 cameras year round and I get a lot from them. Um, but being able to match up body language with a specific type of sound and then seeing how the elk around them are reacting or maybe even hearing that bugle off in the distance and then seeing this bull react to it. Dude, I've learned so much from that audio. It It's just astounding. And more than anything, it just shows me how little I actually know. I, I get reschooled every year. I, the second I think I have things figured out, everything gets turned on its head. So yeah, I think we're all constantly learning. It's a it's a cycle. I, I think that elk are adapting. Everything changes in their world too, based on our decisions. Our where we move homes into, where we lower the cow herds. You know, I've had a big shift in my rut behavior because, like, where I guide, they have, I mean, just obliterated the cow herds. And what's that's done is, one, it's caused five or six bulls to be fighting over five cows. And I've seen a lot more bulls die from multiple bulls ganging up on one. Um, one of my best bulls ever to walk last year died from being gored. Um, two, I'm seeing a shift in the rut patterns because the matriarch cows are dying. The matriarchs are the decision makers when it comes to where they're going to head into rut, not necessarily the bull. He pushes them. He's trying to get away from the other elk, the, the other bulls, right? But it's typically the cows that make the decisions on where the rutting grounds are. And I've seen a shift in my kind of typical rut grounds to other rut grounds because they've slaughtered the cow herds, if that makes sense. So we deal we deal with the opposite over here. You know, we've got like 10 bulls per hundred cows at, at the end of the season. That's our escapement. 
And then our, our populations are enormous. You know, a lot of these units say that the management objective is, is 3000 head for the unit. We've got 6,000 head in there. So we've got way too many elk and not enough bulls. And yeah, the bulls are still getting the cows covered. We're still breeding them. Um, but it, it's not the population dynamic that we're trying to get. And the management objective for bulls is usually between 14 and 20 per hundred. And I would love to see 20 to 25. I think that's a really healthy number. And within that, and like you're saying, um, on, on some of the places that I hunt and work, we're starting to see this age class of bulls come up to like the six and seven year old bracket where they can really grow, but they're also physically, you know, kind of at, at their peak for their ability to kill each other. And if you have a bunch of bulls in that same age bracket and they hit five, six, seven, that's the time where I'm seeing them break off main beams and start to kill each other. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I, I'm not a biologist. I don't know the healthy, like, numbers especially when it comes to it's not like we're just balancing elk we've got to balance mule deer we've got to balance wolves we've got to balance bears we've got to balance cow cattle right that's one of my biggest problems here is the cattlemen are overgrazing they're like punish free like over like putting more cows out than they're allotted on their permits and that's what I'm fighting. And that's part of it. That's they're dropping the elk numbers so that they can add more cattle permits so they can try to manage the deer herds better. It's a big mix that I don't know, but I do know what I see. And so like, and, and back to where we are going, I, I relearn every year because things change so much, you know, there's just so much in the mix. So. It, it's always a complicated thing, just like what you're saying and uh, there, there's no such thing as a balance, right? We keep adding and subtracting ingredients until we try and find what, what compromises and works the best for everybody. I remember a few years ago, my dad and I got pulled out to one of his grazing permits and the local ranger there was really upset because of how much damage had occurred to this one specific area. And it was a spring that also had a little bit of mineral quality in it and um, it, it was bad. It looked like a feedlot and it had just been absolutely smoked and they're ready to pull every single cow out of there. And uh, we went and looked at it and we're like, yeah, fully agree. This does look bad, but there aren't any cow tracks here. These are, these are all elk tracks. And those guys were like, Oh no, what do you mean? It's like, yeah, well, this wasn't cattle. This was, this was elk and they can be really damaging too. And just like there's such a thing as too many cattle, there's definitely such a thing as too many elk. And, you know, we got to, got to do our best to try and get it right. But I'm sorry you're having that struggle. I, oh. I hate to see overgrazing from, from any animal. Like it, it just shouldn't happen. And it's so hard on the ground and it takes a really long time for it to recover if ever. I, yeah. And I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say I know what the right mix is. It, it's crazy. Every now and then they hit it, right? Like they just, hit the nail on the head and our herds are perfection. Like Utah had these years, like 2004 to 2009, where we're, they were just knocking monsters out. And it was cool. Like I, I call that our glory years of elk hunting. However, doing the math, the state's like, holy cow, our point creep's ridiculous. Like we've got to increase the permits and, and not increase the success rate and get more people involved 
and more opportunity. And so they do these late hunts and our big bulls have suffered since, but was it the wrong call? I don't think so. I still think there's opportunity. There's still giant, giant bulls dying every year. It, it's just this weird melting pot. And every year we've got to reassess the situation, right? Well, talk to me a little bit about how you run cameras and how you like what ethical trail camera use is like, since that's part of the conversation today. <laughs> Ethics. Uh, I don't know. Uh, so basics on trail cameras. I run them all about 40 inches high. I really lock them down because uh, the competition here, I do run public land. I don't do anything private. Um, and so lock boxes, cables, padlocks, uh, everything's pointed north or south. I don't point anything east or west. And that's trail cam 101. You start pointing east and west, you get sun glare. And so, but sometimes it's your only option. So you try to do a north, northeast, north, northwest, whatever it is to try to minimize your, cause that's when they move, right? Morning and night. Um, ethics, I, there's a lot of people who think trail cams are unethical. Uh, those same people might think that their long range guns are okay or their Swarovski optics are okay. Man, everyone's got a different kind of spice and I'm not to say which kind of spice is right. Uh, if Utah ever does what Arizona does with trail cams, um, I may stop hunting. Like, like for, for me, ethical trail camera use is mostly about how you treat other people's trail cameras. Like don't steal other people's stuff. Don't mess with it and be reasonable about, you know, where you're putting your cameras and how often you're checking them and make sure that you're not disrupting the behavior of wildlife any more than you absolutely have to. Um, I, I'm a big whitetail hunter. I, you know, when I do whitetail cameras, uh, I boot up, I glove up, I spray down my cameras with no scent. It absolutely changes behavior and patterns. However, elk, I don't see it, at least where I'm at. And I run cameras in most of Southern Utah, Western Colorado, and a little bit of Northern Arizona. I don't see a mess up behavior. And so, except for maybe guys who are running on guzzlers in really Derek like desert arid country, which I don't really. So I don't see it mess with behavior. I don't worry about that stuff too much. I don't even worry about guy wants to put his camera right next to mine. That's fine. Um, I don't like them stacked so I can't access my lock. And by all means, if there's 10 other trees, like let's put them on some other trees, but there, I don't see a lot of like an etiquette. I want everyone out there having fun, you know, just wave to the other cameras do your thing, get in, get out. As long as everyone plays nice, it's not a big deal. You know, has putting the, the scent spray on the cameras reduced the amount of time that you get, you know, videos and photos of elk sniffing and, and licking your cameras. Um, I only would get elk licking my cameras if I had salt on my hands. Okay. And that we don't do that anymore in Utah. So I don't have to mess with it. They don't mess with my cameras too much. Bears mess with my cameras a lot. I have a ton of bears and they're the ones that sniff them out and chew on them. And my boxes are for people and bears more than they are elk. I don't really see that problem, but like whitetail, dude, they, they'll smell your boot tracks. They're out. So I'm really careful there. Whereas here, I'm not so much. 
Gotcha. Okay. So what are you actually looking for on a trail camera that is actionable intelligence? Like there's, there's stuff that I find on videos. That's like, Oh, that's neat. Or stuff that I find on cameras. It's like, I can't do anything with that information. It's completely irrelevant. And then there's, there's videos and pictures that I get. It's like, okay, this is something that I can actually use. This is good knowledge. So what's the awesome. difference in that for you? So when I start my season off, like starting May, June, um, I have about 80 core cameras that I get rolling and they're in different areas and different units and different like everywheres, but they're my cameras. They're my go-tos that are always relevant. They're the ones that kind of produce year after year. I get those going. And then on my second round, I check them all. And from the second round, then I start deciding, okay, these are the bulls I want to focus in on. Like I'm, I determine my age class. That's my first objective to determine my age class and then kind of make a mark on which bulls I want to focus in on. I'm not like most outfitters. I don't uh, just hustle clients in, fill a tag and get them back out again. Um, I do this because I like to hunt the older age class. So I like to bring in two or three guys a year, focus in on two or three bulls do our absolute best to harvest the best bull we can and then call it a year. And so when I assessed age class, then I start making kind of a hit list, right. Of which bulls I'm going to chase. And I bring in X amount of cameras to try to figure out their patterns. Elk run big loops. They kind of, they hit bench after bench after bench after bench till they worked all the way around a ridge. And then they get back to square one and I try figuring out their loops. And that's what I think you're calling actionable knowledge. Figuring out what their pattern is, is a big deal for me as a bow hunter. That's, it, it gives me an upper hand. Figuring out where they're daylighting, which bedding areas they hit during the daylight. That's actionable knowledge. Um, finding which way, like say I have a camera in a clearing and there's a spring or a wallow. Finding out which way they that one bull, not all of them, which way he comes in and out the most, that's actionable knowledge because when you're ambush hunting, like I do, tree stands, I need to figure out what's his interest and what's his exit and what wind do I have during those times. So I set up tree stands based on, uh, well, wind first, right, obviously, but Sometimes I need the best wind that's in the mornings and the best wind at night. And I may have two different stands for that guy to hunt that one bull because in the mornings he comes in from this way and the evenings he comes in from this way. Does that make sense? Oh, totally. Yeah. And that's, that's a good bleed over from whitetail tactics that works really well for elk that, you know, elk hunters don't necessarily um, take those lessons, but they should. Well, it, if, if there's one thing that I try to emphasize in, Every lecture I've done, every podcast, I've, I've tried to tell guys, elk, the game is wind. Always wind. I, I keep those little chalk bottles in every pocket on me, including my bino harness, my jacket pockets, my cargo pants, because I don't want to be doing this looking for wind. I, like I'm constantly checking, especially during the rut or during the day when you have the most shifty winds. Um, you know, those 30 minutes, first light, 30 minutes of before the sun goes down, that's your kind of most consistent downwind, whichever way you're going to be. And so 
I lay off a little bit in those times, but wind is my game. hundred percent rut post rut lockdown, anything it's always wind. And so when you're setting up for ambush locations, that's the thing you've got to be paying to, attention to the very most entrance and exits key. Wind is always top priority. And yeah, whitetail guys are good at that. If you can learn how to do it here at elevation, you'll master the game. It's different. Does that make sense? Oh, hundred percent. Um, do you ever put wind indicators in front of your camera so you can see what the wind is doing at different times of day? Nope. Never thought of it. I, most of my cameras I've, I, I hunt, I've hunted these areas for 20 years. I really have a pretty good idea when I'm placing a camera, what the wind's going to be doing in that spot. So I don't stress that as much until I know what their entrance and exit is. And then it might be a good idea to put those in and I might have an idea, but I've never actually thought of that. So it's pretty good. Gotcha. I will do that sometimes with a, with a piece of ribbon, um, feather on a, on a piece of fishing line, something like that. And, uh, if it's, if it's a new area to me, that's the time that I'm going to do it because you get, you do get to learn the wind in an area. And, and the more time you spend thinking about nothing besides wind, uh, you'll get to the point where you can look at it and you you'll have a pretty good guess of what normal wind is going to do. Storm wind is an entirely different thing, but your diurnal wind up and down, you can figure that out by eyeballing it once you get good at it for the most part. But man, there's been a lot of times that I've stuck a hunter in a, in a stand and the wind is doing wrong for him when I stick him in there and uh, say, just, just wait. Like when the elk comes in, it's going to be a different wind. And that's another game that you've, you've just got to play and you're not always right, but you're doing the best that you can. Yep. And that's, that's a game. Just like you said, you know, my archery statistics, I'm typically one arrow gets loose to eight stocks. Like we're always failing. Like, and if you're not failing, you're not bow hunting hard enough. Like it's just constant, right? Statistics for me is 60% hard work, 40% luck. You have to have all those things to make things happen. For me, the 60% is 900 miles and 120 cameras or so. <laughs> like that's just kind of how I do things. So there's a lot of elements at play. Preseason is a ton of work. You know, during the rut, I don't like the rut because when you're trophy hunting the rut, I'll call in 20, 30, 40 bulls to one that might be pushing book class, let alone something extra if I'm looking for some 400-inch weirdo, right? And so the rut is extra hard for me. Whereas if I can pattern them early season, it ups my success of getting on top of them, if that makes sense. So let's, let's talk about this early season stuff. Like let's give people a, a plan for how they're going to, going to attack it. You know, say it's, it's August 20th. Um, and we're going to talk all the way through like September 5th. Okay. And you want to start that day? Sure. Let's start on August 20th. <laughs> okay. So. August 20th, typically, uh, most of your bulls will start rubbing. I've seen them as early as the 10th. I've seen them as late as the 30th. Um, but usually that 15th to 18th area, like all your mature bulls are starting to rub out. Um, in this time, those bulls will pick a spot and stay there for three or four days. That 20th is actually on that window. It's like kind of in that place that where they might be locked in one place for four or five days. Um, 
and it can throw off the big rotation that you've been trying to figure out all summer long, but not by much. And once they start peeling, they kind of stay in that spot. They rub out, rub out, rub out. And then I see elk start moving a little bit more. I see the rotations get a little bit wider. They don't necessarily leave that rotation till about the 5th, 7th, 10th of September, but they actually kind of work a little slower because they spend more time rubbing trees, checking a time clock. I like, I look at it like, you know, whitetails do rub lines and scrapes, right? Wallows and, and trees are the same thing. Like elk are just big whitetails. They run rub lines just like a whitetail does. There's oftentimes you'll find a bench or a creek drainage and you'll see rub, 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 rub as you walk down. It's the same type of rub line you'll run into on a whitetail October 20th. And so I just pay attention to those minor things because it lets me know I've got them kind of locked down in this one spot. Maybe in a few more days, I have them again, you know, but once that gets in there, like once the velvet's off, they're still going to stay for a little bit. Last year, uh, I was hunting Arizona for one of the governor tags there with the A3 crew. We found a bull. Uh, The hunt didn't actually start till August 15th. Well, the 13th, he finally dried out enough. He started to rub. And he was about 14 miles from an Indian reservation, depending on how you went, maybe eight. But I was really worried that he was going to start migrating the second he started rubbing. But he did just like what I'm saying. He took three or four days. He didn't move. Stayed in this little spot, kept rubbing, eating acorns, hit the water rub. And he stayed there just long enough for us to slip in and get the job done. It worked out. But who knows, by the 25th, he could have started moving because that's when they're starting to look for cows and kind of mark territory, so to speak. And a lot of bulls migrate a long ways. By September 20th, some of my bulls have moved 15 miles. So it's, it's always a stress for me. That was a big stress on that bull because I didn't know if he was going to stick around for four or five days or just peel. Yeah. And, and 15 or 20 miles could be a different hunting unit. Yep. Or a sovereign nation or another state. (laughs) (laughs) You never know. You've got to be really careful. So elk are big animals. They move a long ways. Yeah. Yeah. I've got bulls that, uh, well, one bull in particular that, we've really tried to kill for the last three years and haven't. Um, and I know he's going to show up sometime between September 7th and September 10th. And I know where he's going to show up. I have no idea where he comes from, but I imagine it's from a long ways away. I have bulls that they move um, really early September 5th. And then I have bulls that don't pull in till October 10th. Um, you know, I, I kind of, I'm I'm not hunting general season like you, like you can't get these tags. Guys wait 20 years or pay a hundred thousand dollars for these tags. Um, And so being that I I hunt more eight and nine year olds plus than I do five and six year olds. You know, one of the things, you know, if, if we go back to our timeline and we're looking at August 20th, nothing really changes other than they might move miles between August 20th and September 5th. But that September 5th is when kind of your, your younger age class start running cows. You know, the um, antlers kind of work like radiators for, for bucks and bulls. 
it helps keep them cool in the summertime. That's why a lot of the time you see them bedded and their heads are propped up, sticking up over the grass. They're trying to catch the wind. It keeps their bodies cool. Uh, when that starts to dry up, even sometimes before the velvet's completely off, you'll see them start rolling in wallows because they can't keep cool. Well, come that early September, that's when bulls, especially your younger age class, they feel the rut coming on. Like their testosterone has increased. They're starting to roll in wallows. They're starting to get hyped up and bugled. And that's when those 330, maybe even 280 type to 340 start running cows. They're bugling, they're pushing herds, they're trying to get involved. The older age class bulls, until they smell a hot cow, they don't care. They're not even interested. Um, they stick to their patterns a little bit later, almost every year, every bull. I've never had one just start cranking early, just the younger bulls. And that's one of the mistakes a lot of guys make when they come into limited entry units they make the assumption that the herd bulls, the biggest bull running because on a lot of over the counter public land hunts, that is the biggest, best bull. He's running the cows. That's, that's our bad big boy. When you get on these limited entry units, when you have an upper age class, those bulls don't kick in till September 20th. And even then typically they won't run cows at all. They skirt herds. They follow herds. When they smell a hot cow, they hook in, get her, breeder let her go without ever fighting or hurting or burning off their fat content and it makes them that much bigger the next year the uh the younger bulls they work the hardest and so i don't get hyped up on bugles not till later in the season i try to stick to patterns till god you you really can push it to like the 15th on your upper age class whereas if you're chasing bugles I mean, you can start that Labor Day. It's it's all, it, it all depends on the age class of the unit you're on and what you're actually chasing. If you're just chasing any six point, by all means, you're you're running early. But for me, I don't even like getting involved with the rut till later in the season, twentieth of September. So you'll you'll hear on the internet from a lot of people that say, you know. They're going to be really aggressive, lots of challenge bugles. They're just looking for a really aggressive bull and they run that game all season long and they just wait for a bull that'll play, play that game with them. And then they go in there and kill him. Um, I hunt every day of the season. I guide every day of the season. I don't get the, the luxury of being super aggressive all season long. Otherwise I'm going to scare all these elk off and um, then it's over with, you know, we're going to be hunting grouse and pine squirrels. And that's, uh, that's not a very cool thing to do to your clients. So I've got to play, play the game differently on every day of the season. And I can't ever blow these elk out. So are calls part of your game at all in that early season? No, I, I'm not much of a caller. Um, I, I'll, I'll get in, like I locate bugle quite a bit. Um, but even when we're bow hunting and I'm doing setting up, you know, I, I mean, I, I shouldn't make the assumption that everybody knows how to set up, but a lot of guys, when they uh, archery hunt elk, you, you kind of, you play the wind, you play the position of the bull, you place a shooter and you put a collar behind him, right? This is elk kind of one-on-one archery. So that your wind plays your game. You want to try 
bringing that bull in on a string to your shooter while you're placed way back calling wherever that may be, that's going to get him past him. Right. Um, I don't play that game necessarily. I don't bugles a lot of time for me cause elk to quiet up. They know there's an elk there. They know there's a bull there. They start to slow down way early. They'll start to circle. They start to get nervous. So when guys are being quiet, setting up calling like crazy, it makes the elk more nervous because elk aren't quiet ever. Even, I mean, during the summer, like you get into a herd, they're loud. So I focus more on making noise. I get back behind my shooter a long ways. I give them 120 yards. I'll call a little bit, but I spend more time breaking branches, knocking sticks on trees, splashing in water if I have it. I'm not calling for me is never been the most successful tactic. Um, Now there's guys that are way better and they may not be hunting the age class that I am like Corey Jacobson knows how to talk to elk. He knows what to say. It's not like Corey's just bugling back and forth with bulls. He's having a conversation. He, he's trying to be timid enough to not push, have him grab his cows and run away, but aggressive enough that he feels like that bull needs to come challenge him. He knows what to say at all times. And I can play that game a little bit, but I'm not as good. So I spend more time ambushing. I want them to just think I'm an elk. I want them to come in with their guards down. I want them to come in with snot blowing and pissed off, not looking for a bull, wondering how big is that bull? You know, how they, they don't know. So they're coming in. I don't know this bugle. I don't know like his size. Am, am I fighting a giant? What am I doing? They kind of start tiptoeing in. If I'm just back there making noise, they just think there's a bunch of cows and one herd bull that come take a look. So I, I don't know. I, I wouldn't say I'm great at, at calling and I wouldn't say those guys on the internet are wrong because I am very loud. I, I like camo. I like good gear. I don't think you need it in the rut. Everything's wind. Everything is wind and sound and getting in the right position. So that's my game more more over than other guys. Does that make sense? It does. And I would, I would say that what you're doing is calling. It's just not calling in the way that we think about calling, you know, raking is, is one of the most powerful things that I do in, in hunting season. Like raking is so deadly and you don't have to be an expert raker to be an expert raker. You, you've got to be able to rub on a tree. And uh, that is one of the more aggressive things. I think, you know, one elk can do to another elk is rake a tree that, you know, is in that elk's vicinity. You know, they, they just can't hardly tolerate that. It seems like. So if you're breaking sticks and splashing in the water, that's totally calling. It's just not using a diaphragm. Right. Agree 100%. So, you know, ideally we've run some cameras, we've determined the elk that are in the area and, you know, we've got an idea what their patterns are. Maybe we didn't get that opportunity. Say somebody's coming in from out of state and they're just rolling in into a new spot. What are some things they can do if, if they're brand new, if they're, if they're fresh to the scene? Um, every question I always start with, with anybody that ever calls me for advice or calls me to guide them. My first question is always, what's your expectations? Um, Typically if they've put in for one of these tags or 
or bought a tag, they, they've done some kind of homework to know what's there, right? And so me setting expectations is the very first thing. And I think any unit, any hunter, I don't care if you're hunting mule deer, whitetail, axis deer, you've got to establish expectation before you walk into the mountain. So if I'm going to a place that I don't know, uh, my first call are to hunters that hunt it all the time and to biologists to see what my age class is, right? I just feel like if, even if I know nothing else, I don't want to walk into a unit, pass on a 340 bull opening day to find out that was the biggest bull on the unit in the last five years. And so establishing expectation is your very first thing that you want to know before walking in on any unit any hunt. Um, and that's what I think is top tier. Um, the next is looking at dates, uh, moon cycle, even though I'm not really good at moon cycle, I do happen to know, you know, what really triggers estrus is full moons. And I can look at, God, we got a full moon on the seventh and we got a full moon coming back in on the 23rd and no moon on the 19th. I'm going hard that last week rut hunting. Whereas, earlier, I'm just going to do, be doing more ambush type tactics. Um, and so I'm walking in on a unit that's, I just start doing miles, man. My, my biggest thing is, dude, you can look on Google earth all day. You can mark benches, you can mark water, you can start looking at all these areas that have healthy elk behavior, but I don't know anything till I have boots on the ground. Once I get on that bench, I start looking for rub lines. I start looking for pre-rut type behavior which which are the rub lines that are tick-tocked right versus hard rut where you're finding trees ripped in half and it's only every two or three hundred yards you're finding a rub especially on a north face then i start going okay this is more september 15th 20th territory whereas these rub lines that's late august early september area and for this bow tag i'm going to focus over here it, I, I still guesswork, but you're not going to learn any of it without miles. And it's just miles and miles of pounding. Yes, spending time with a biologist helps, but biologists typically send everybody to the same area. And yes, studying maps help because you can find benches and water sources, even pinch points. I like to look at um, changes in how the landscaping, the feed, and I look at it in triangles. I want to find areas of open graze, bench, and maybe oak brush or water, bench, open graze. When I find a triangle of things with that bench included, I like to hit those areas because those are the spots where elk can feed, water, and bed all in a small area in a day or two. When I find those triangles, I hit those. So not just looking for a bench, but I want to find food, water, and bed. Why are benches important? They're easier to walk. Elk are big, right? Um, in all my years of running cameras, I've only had one ridge runner, one bull that's ever just gone up one ridge and down another. And he was a retard. He literally had a horn growing out of his head. He had weird <laughs> behavior. I couldn't kill him. He only moved at night. He really, I really struggled with 90% of my bulls make big loops the younger age class five to six years old they run a tighter loop um 
seriously, four to seven miles. My older age class bulls, I've had bulls that run 18 mile loops, big. And for them to cover that kind of ground, benches are the easiest way to walk, especially with big headgear. And so benches are big. They're easier to bed. They're not as steep. You've got a better thermal. Like for elk, benches are clutch. Does that make sense? It does. And, uh, you know, a, a big bull will be 800 pounds ish, big cow, 600 pounds ish. Uh, that doesn't breed well on a hillside. Mm-mm. That's, that's asking for trouble. So as you get closer and, to and the cal- rut, a little bit of flat ground gets really important. And calves don't live long in steep ground. So a lot of times I have guys hit me up and they say, God, I got 15 cameras out and I have, you know, tons of cow elk, cows and calves. I'm just getting one random bull every now and then. My first question is what tag do you have? When's, what's your season? Are, Are you hunting the 20th? Good. Then don't move your cameras. You're fine. If you want to buy some more, move them, try to see what age class you're looking at by all means, but you've established where the rut's going to start. Don't just give that information away. The problem is, is cows, calves can't escape bears fast enough on steep ground. They do better in lower terrain, flatter areas. So even when they're high, benches are clutch for calves. And elk, they learn as babies, that's where they need to travel. And so it's just basic survival for them. And that's why age even exists is because elk aren't smart the smartest elk's a hundred times dumber than the dumbest human they just have really good instincts yeah they're good at right they're good at surviving and and they can smell their problems from a long ways off yeah absolutely what kind of tree stands do you like uh <laughs> i have i have so many i just a lot of them are um Amazon specials. I I like to give the guys a wide platform so they're able to stand up and move around. Um, Early season elk is not short sits. They're they're not all day like you do on a whitetail in November, but man, my guys start hiking about four. They get in stand at 530 and they don't leave till 10 o'clock. So four and a half hours in one spot. And then evening's even worse. I want them in stand by three. I start seeing movement at 3.30. And they have till nine, 10 o'clock sometimes before they can get out. So six, seven hours. So I, I like to find them with comfy seats and wide platforms when I can. If it's super far back in, I go as light as possible. Last year, I ran a bunch of the Novik stands. And they have a new one that's really light. I'm going to run them a bunch. Their platforms aren't as wide, but for getting back a long ways, they're nice because they're light, really sturdy. And then uh, how far are you having your dudes hike in from where you drop them off? until? And some, some bulls live right next to the highway. Yeah. (laughs) I, I tell people like, don't stress about getting to the highest peak. A lot of elk feel safe right next to the highway because there's less predators. Gotcha. It all depends, right? Like some, some are big hikes. I had a guy last year, his hike in was almost two and a half hours. And because it's so far and he had to get up so early, like I set up changing stations so that 
he'd have enough time to get in somewhere downwind where he had good cover. He could change out to some dry clothes, get some towels, wash off, try to eliminate his scent as best as possible before he made the next 150 yards into a stand because um, it's not easy and it's not close. But some of my stands, I, I mean, the guys listen to cars driving by. It, it all depends on the bowl. Gotcha. I wasn't sure if there was like a, a minimum distance that, that you would drop somebody off away from the stand, but yeah, no, I agree. I I'm a big proponent of hunting, hunting the front, the back country, you know, it, it's great. And the farther in you get the fewer people, those animals see. So they tend to be a little bit easier to hunt and, uh, and you can have some terrific wilderness experiences, but man, if you're back there three or four miles, you've got a lot of work, a lot of work cut out to get that bull out. If you're back there, you know, nine or 10 miles, you're probably going to waste some meat unless you've got a bunch of dudes to help you get that meat out. And that's just the reality of it. I mean, if you've got to make four trips in and out and you're 10 miles deep and every one of those trips is 80 to hundred pounds of meat, you're in trouble. Especially early season when it's hot. Yeah. And so, you know, I always make sure I have some kind of team on notification. Um, big elk die where they are. It, it's something my grandpa's always told me since I was little. Like, you don't hesitate to kill a big bull. You kill them where they are. Like, otherwise, you're going to lose your chance. And so I've never hesitated. I, he taught me really early how to break a bull down to nothing but meat, cape, and skull cap. And I know how to do it. And I'm really good at it and I can do it fast. But even at that, if I don't have a team and I'm nine miles in, there is no way I'm salvaging every ounce. You have to have that kind of support. And so if you're doing those kind of backpack hunts, make sure you have, I don't care if it's llamas, some local guys that you've talked to with horses, something to help you get that elk out so that we're not causing waste. Right. So I like the backcountry stuff, especially if I'm not hunting limited entry type units. Like that's, that's how you get it done, but you've got to be smart about how you're doing it for sure. What, uh, what other advice do you have for, uh, for early season hunters? Um, if you're in an area that you can glass, by all means, I, I learned to pattern bulls on a unit that I could glass. I, I didn't make the connection. It was like 2005 or six. And at that point, I, I'd killed some really big bulls, but I'm sitting up on this peak and I actually had the time to spend. And I'd had a bull here on, on Tuesday and a bull here on Thursday and a bull over here on Saturday. And then all of a sudden, Wednesday, he's back to the same spot. And I'm like, oh, that's weird. And then I had to go home for a few days and I come back and now it's day 16 and here he is back on the same spot. And I realized he's got an eight day rotation that's 13 miles. And I know points X, Y, Z, and A R. And that's a huge win. That, that's a huge win. And it takes a lot to figure out. And so it's something I don't get to do because of where I am, but glass can be a huge proponent. Glass is even better because you're not invading their home. You're not going into pull SD cards and, and you're not putting tracks on the trails that other guys might see your tracks and move in on. Right. Cause I do have that problem. Guys follow me. They see my truck, they get out and walk and good for them. But 
when you're doing it from glass, you can be a little more uh, secluded and, and less invasive. Um, and it's not something I'm great at. I love glassing. I just don't have a lot of area that I do it in. And so my success isn't as great. Um, I do as they get later in the season, my elk actually migrate into a lot of uh, lower acorn country. And once they migrate into there, it's a vegetation change, right? I have to have the green acorns, which really don't pop till about the 15th of August. Then I can start glassing. And then we have tactics that we use to guide guys in on bulls, get them to bed, wait for the thermals to rise. And then I walk a guy in by, you know, waving a white shirt this way. Or, you know, I always have these symbol like signals that I give them so that they know all oh, the bulls right here. So, those are some early season tactics. That's awesome. If, if I could say one thing, always keep some kind of loud shirt in your pack, maybe a rain jacket that's orange or a white cotton shirt that you can throw away and use as a rag to clean your hands or whatever later. But that white flag, man, when you're glassing a guy across a canyon two miles away, it's hard to pick him out in full camo. Those are like awesome tips for areas that you can actually use glass and have spotters help you. At, at that point, you're hunting elk like mule deer, right? You're, you're actually using some tactics that, that mule deer guys find successful is sitting on a ridge, having a spotter walk you in. You know, if, if you're not doing Pope and Young type stuff, by all means, use a radio. But if you're going for record book type stuff like I do, I have a lot of signals we have to follow. And so white shirt in the packs, huge in my camp. Um, I always keep a flashlight in my pocket. Uh, almost anywhere in Utah, except for one place, I'm within 30 miles of a road. If I have a light, I can get out of anywhere. If I have a light and water, two days time, I can make it. So I've had guys that like drop their pack, go chasing a bull and it gets dark and they come back and can't find their pack. They're done. You, they make a bed, they sit down. I tell them, if you don't make it to camp, I'll come find you. But they're out. If you have a light in your pocket, whether it's your phone, whether it's your GPS, whether it's just a little, I, I have a little bushnell I keep that's this big that clips into my pants and I never leaves my pants because I know I can make it out. So having stuff like that in your pockets and not in your pack can be life-saving, especially early season when you're dropping your bag a lot. Yeah. That's a, uh... That's one thing that I carry two of, and, and there's not very many things that I'll carry two of, but um, a headlamp is definitely something that I'm going to carry multiples of. And there's a, there's a power play that you can do for your second headlamp. Cause a lot of times these things will turn on inside your pack, you know, and you go to grab it and the dang thing's dead. If you flip those batteries around backwards, they won't drain out. Um, so for, oh, for your backup headlamp, you know, just as soon as you have to go to it, you flip those batteries around and they're going to be a hundred percent. Awesome. That's a great idea. Yeah. I, I like that. I like the, the white shirt signaling idea. I, I think that's pretty cool. It's also really important to work out your signals ahead of time. I've seen some really <laughs> bizarre hand and arm signals from, uh, from hunters that, you know, are good friends of mine and they're doing these weird things and I have no idea what they're trying to explain to me, 
but uh, yeah, you got to definitely work out your code ahead of time. Otherwise you'll be very confused out there on the hillside. You know, and that's, that's one thing, you know, a lot of guys, I'm a DIY hunter. I was raised that way. I've always like for my own tags, that's what I do. But for these guys that have limited entry tags that have waited 20 years or paid 20, 30, 50, hundred grand for these tags, I tell them hire guides, man. They've got a team. They've, They've worked out all their kinks. They're all on the same radio channel. They all know the canyons that you're in. If you get in a pinch, someone can come help. I only have to say like, hey, I'm at the head of, you know, Wells Canyon. I know they know right where I'm at. They're like, okay, you're probably on that wallow on the northeast corner. Good. See you in a bit. It's nice to have a team that knows what they're doing. And when people poo-poo guides, I'm like, well, yeah, some guides suck. But a lot of times guides really have their stuff together. They've put together all the pieces and they're ready to go when it's time to go. It's nice to have a team. Well, and it doesn't take a lot of research to determine before your hunt, whether your guide is a good guide or not. Like that's a couple phone calls. And yeah, I've, I've been guiding for 22 years now and I love hunting with other guides because every time I do, whether they're bad or good, I learn something really important from them that I can take back. And, you know, the next time I'm guiding, I'm better at it because of that lesson that I learned, whether it's that somebody was doing something wrong or doing something right. You know, I'm, I'm all about improving. hundred percent. I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. Every time I, I meet up with a new crew, there's some kind of weird tactic or, or something. I always learn that I'm like, God, I never even thought of it. That's pretty sweet. I could actually put that into play. And, and you could say that about any hunter, right? That's, that's one thing we need more of in our industry is mentors. We need guys willing to spend some time with some kids to show them how cool this stuff is. It, it's a huge deal. And, and just passing on little bits of information, like having a flashlight in your pocket could save a life and really help some people out, you know? Yeah. My, uh, my uncle was hunting up in Northwest Montana for whitetail last fall and uh, he shot this buck and the buck went down and, and died halfway in a river. And it was at last light. And he got down there, got the buck pulled out of the water, um, got him gutted, and then started to head for the truck to go get help. Fell in the river, hurt himself, um, kind of got discombobulated. And then it was pitch black. And all he had for a light was the LED of his GPS. And that died on him. And he ended up spending a really cold night on the hillside search and rescue found him the next day, um, could have died, you know, really close call. A light would have changed that completely. Very, very important. I wouldn't know had I not been there a few times. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, in the thing with learning from guides, like we don't get to spend time around each other very often. When we do, it's at a show and, uh, you know, mostly you're just talking trash and, and drinking and listening to a concert going on in the background or watching a backpack race or, or some kind of nonsense. And, uh, you know, our opportunities to learn from each other are fairly limited. We get some interactions like this on, on podcasts and, and things like that, but where we really get to learn from each other is when we hunt with each other. Oh, I, I agree 100%. And September only comes one month out of the year. You know, it, it's a short window, especially if you're booked out and, Honestly, I, I don't see more than eight guys all September. I don't see half the bulls that hit the dirks. I'm not in cell reception. 
I kind of play catch up when I get home and, and it, it sucks, you know, but at the same time, every now and then, like I'm in Arizona with a whole nother crew learning some stuff that I'm like, Hey, this makes sense. Or, or I'm turning around and saying, dude, what you did there was so half-assed backwards and shitty. Like (laughs) you need to change your game up. Let's, let's do this a little bit. And half the time they're like, what you're saying makes a lot of sense. Let's, I'm, I'm going to do that. It's nice to, to help each other out and learn. I, we, we're, we're in an industry with a bunch of alpha males, right? And a lot of times everyone's squaring up all the time. It's, it's ridiculous. We need more teamwork and we need more kind of support on handling issues that are coming up that are changing our whole tradition. Yep. And, and it's a big deal. And everyone needs to put in a little bit of effort to kind of find their position on what's right, what's wrong, what fits me. Be okay with what fits you doesn't fit somebody else. You know, Utah just did away with baiting. Now, for me, it's no big deal. Baiting never works. Um, I'd put salt out on my cameras because it would get the elk to pause and I could actually get a good look at what they were doing. But it never, they don't come back because there's salt there. Apples I've never seen work. Um, maybe alfalfa in winter can help. That, that can bait a big bull in in the, in the late season. Um, but for what I do, especially early season, bait doesn't work. So they made this law and I'm like, whatever. However, it didn't just affect my early season elk tactics, right? It affected like the, the groups that take youth hunters into urban areas and bait deer and, and, and do population control and get younger kids involved in the hunt. Now they can't use bait to help those kids kill those apples. And we're taking a generation out from learning how to hunt or, or the guy that, you know, his grandpa likes to bow hunt and he has a bunch of elk in his field and they'd come eat apples late season and grandpa could shoot a cow. He just took that away from somebody's grandpa. It's not like he took options away from me, the the guy he's trying to like, uh, level the playing fields or make ethical. I have no idea what the, the, the overall rule was about, but he took options away from us getting other people involved. And those are the issues that I need. I think all of us need to sit down and think about before we start making rules and regulations and government overreach on top of each other, because we feel like one guy has an upper hand. It, we have a weird industry. We can help each other. We can hurt each other. It, it takes a thought process between the steps, you know? And we're really tribal. And, you know, that's that's something that I get. Like, I understand I'm, I'm definitely part of a tribe as well. But it, it's gotten to the point with a lot of people. It's like, oh, that dude wears a different camo than I do. I'm not going to talk to that guy. That's a, you know, that's a Sitka guy. That's a Kuyu guy. I don't talk to the Kuyu guys. Like, that's, that's a stupid reason not to talk, talk to somebody and be friends with them and, and learn from them and maybe offer them something in return if you have something to offer. So we, we need to understand that, yeah, we're part of our own little tribes, but we're also part of a bigger tribe, which is people that enjoy hunting, care about wildlife. And we're the only ones who care enough to actually make change that matters to wildlife. Well said, well said. And, and typically sometimes breaking down those barriers is being the guy that comes over and offers a hand and, you know, 
like when something said like dude i don't, I don't care what camera you have on bro <laughs> like you know i i need some water or you need a hand like let's be there and help each other out right yeah so and, I, and you've always been like that man that. like you know it, it was years ago that i reached out and i was like hey man i need to get some different cameras what i'm what i have isn't working out and you didn't know me from adam and you're willing to you know, take the time to explain what you're doing, what, what I needed to do for the situation that I was in. I really appreciated that. Like we'd never met before ever. And, and you took the time, like you're, you're setting a really positive example for, for other people to follow. And, you know, I appreciate it a lot. Oh, thanks, man. Right, and I appreciate you saying so. I, I try to do my best. I get behind, like I started doing just videos because I can get on a DM and some guy asked me a question. I can just say, Hey, look, man, I understand what you're saying and it takes too much to type. So this is the way I'd approach it. It's really fast. You don't have to respond this way. Thanks for reaching out. It takes me two seconds, but I can respond to almost anybody and just give them a little bit of heads up, you know, and it's pretty rare that I get a lot of flack for stupid stuff. And and when I do, I, you know, whatever, my, th- my skin's thicker than that. <laughs> I, I can take a, I can take a little bit. I do stupid stuff too. Right. So oh, I do it a lot, usually publicly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're not alone. dude. <laughs> well, man, any closing thoughts? Um, no, I, you know, I, I always want to make sure everyone's walking out the door is safe. You know, I, I the mountains don't care about you. They, they don't, they don't, worry if you're going to make it back to your car they're not going to make your hunt easy everything's hard the wind's hard the rain's hard be prepared when you walk out of your truck have a backup plan know where you're at have a gps if you can like just basic woodmanship is is very important to our demographic you don't have to be this master survivalist that that can survive on a loan it's as simple as when you leave your truck, make sure you got water, make sure you got a flashlight, make sure you have a plan. I'm going up this Canyon. I'm coming out this Canyon. And I, with my guides, I am very uh, adamant about making sure they tell me where they're going. Like I, I can't tell you over my span, I bet maybe 10, 10 times that I've had to go get grown men off the mountain not because they weren't capable, not because they were in danger. They may have been just fine, but because I don't know if they're up there with a broken foot. A lot of times it's just, they've left their pack and they couldn't find it and they don't have a light and they're holing up in a tree, but I find them. We get the pack. We walk off the mountain because I want to make sure it's not a broken limb or a heart attack or something else. Cause those things happen. And so if I have any kind of closing thoughts, one is be careful, have some be somewhat prepared for where you're heading into and always check the wind elk the game is wind that's all it is you get good at managing the wind you're going to be very successful yeah i'll tell you what i i live with a little puff bottles like i've got them all over me too but if you can find the things that have the little seed floater guys dude those are so much better because they'll show you what the wind is doing 50 yards from you instead of, you know, the, the puffies, they're gone within five feet, but you'll get to watch that air current and it might wrap around a tree and 10 yards away, then it shoots off to the left. Like it's amazing how much more you'll learn from, uh, from the little seed floater puffy things that I wish I had a better name for because I sound ridiculous describing it. (laughs) Well, 
And you're probably right. I, I, I don't pause the basketball game fast enough to like sit and watch what that's doing. <laughs> I'm literally, I'm literally running and the guy behind me is covered in white chalk. <laughs> that's, <just how> it goes. <laughs> that's my game. Yeah. Well, that's good. That means the wind's in your face. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right, buddy. Well, good luck this season. Wish you all the best and uh, look forward to catching up if there's ever a trade show again. Awesome, man. Well, it's good having a talk with you. Thanks for having me on. Thank you. I live in an old cabin with bad to non-existent insulation and wood heat. That cabin can see snow every month of the year and needs a good amount of firewood stacked in the woodshed to carry through the colder months. This spring, as my wood pile turned to smoke and ash, I noticed something metal pushing out of the decades of sawdust and bark. I kicked at it and unearthed a Stanley thermos. The cup was missing, and it showed more worn stainless steel than green. There were dents in the metal, and the handle looked like a puppy had chewed on it, but it still hadn't leaked the old coffee I could feel slosh inside. It took me back to memories of cutting firewood with my dad, waking up early for an elk hunt, or going out to the canyons to gather cattle. A Stanley thermos has the durability to survive whatever hard work you throw at it. You may find it carries memories as well as coffee. Learn more about their new and classic line of products at stanley1913.com or at your local sporting goods store. And catch you next week. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and share the show with a friend. You can also rate the podcast and leave a review. Your support allows me to keep doing what I love, which is meeting incredible folks and sharing their stories with you. For more content and photos, follow the show on Instagram at Six Ranch Podcast or me at Six Ranch Outfitters. This episode was produced by Emily Brannigan with original music written and performed by Justin Hay. Art for the Six Ranch Podcast was created by John Chatelain and digitized by Celia Christofferson. Tune in every Monday for a brand new episode of the Six Ranch Podcast. I'll catch you next week.